Glory to Jesus Christ. Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish presents Light of the East, a program revealing how the Eastern Catholic Churches have nourished the Roman Catholic Churches and today's world in profound ways through their histories, traditions, mysteries, and spirituality. Hello, I am Father Thomas J. Loya, pastor of Annunciation of the Mother of God Byzantine Catholic Church in Homer Glen, Illinois, and this is a story of the Eastern Churches, an inspiring story of faith, courage, intrigue, mystery, spirituality, dissension, and reconciliation. But most of all, this is an expression of a great experience of faith through our unique divine liturgy. Join with me now as we look toward the Light of the East. Light of the East is also supported by Eastern Christian Publications, where you can find the prayers of the Catholic Byzantine Daily Office at ecpubs.com and by easternchristianmedia.com, a broadband network for you to learn more about the Eastern Catholic Churches. That's easternchristianpublications.com. Christ is ascended in glory. Welcome to Light of the East. I am Father Thomas Loyal, your host. I greeted you with the greeting of this week because we celebrated the Feast of the Ascension of our Lord. And we no longer say Christ is risen. We now say Christ is ascended. And the response, which I gave, is your response, actually. It is in glory. So Christ is ascended in glory. But right in the midst of this Feast of the Ascension, we have the celebration of the fathers of the first ecumenical council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., a significant council, and one that actually is responsible for the creed that we say in the Mass or in the liturgy. Both churches, East and West, both lungs of the church, in the Eucharistic liturgy, the Mass, the Eucharistic prayer of the church, East and West, we pronounce the Apostles' Creed or the Constantinopolitan Nicene Creed. It's a couple of names because they're one built upon the other, but we profess our faith before we come to receive the Eucharist. In a classic book I often refer to, it's called The Liturgical Year of the Byzantine Slavonic Rite by Father Basil Shedegi, who I had the privilege of knowing when I was young. He was a great scholar in our church. He wrote this wonderful book on the liturgical calendar that we often refer to here. And for this Sunday of the Holy Fathers of the First Nicene Council, he says this, that this Sunday recalls the victory of the true faith over its enemies and affirms the importance of the first ecumenical council held in Nicaea in 325 AD. It is the council convened by the first Christian emperor, Constantine the Great, with the sanction of Pope Sylvester I. It lasted two months and 12 days. About 250 bishops were present. Hosius, Bishop of Cordova, attended as a legate of the Pope. To this council, we owe the Nicene Creed the defense of the divinity of the Son of God against the heresy of Arius, and the fixing of the date for Easter. Now, I'll stop right there and mention something here. Notice, the council was convened by the first Christian emperor, Constantine, who was, of course, a Byzantine, from the Byzantine Empire, from what was Byzantium, later renamed Constantinople, and today it is modern-day Istanbul. So he convened it. 
Back then, this idea of emperors doing things administratively in the church and vice versa was very prevalent. It's unthinkable for us today that a civil leader could call forth a conference or council that has to do with the church. But that's what happened back then. Popes, bishops used to basically create world leaders, and world leaders would create popes and bishops. It's hard for us to imagine, but that's what happened. So Constantine convenes this council, and it has the sanction of Pope Sylvester I, and he sent a representative. So here we have an example of the place of the papacy and the place of a ruler of the Byzantine Empire, two leaders from the East and West working together. It shows the place of the papacy even in the Eastern churches. There were other places in history where the Pope had an active role in something that happened in the Eastern churches, the Eastern lung of the church. Nowadays, of course, we don't totally understand that because we have this big division between the Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church, and one doesn't really have influence over the other. Whereas back then, when we were still united, the church was one, although there was a church of the East and church of the West. The church of the West had its head in Rome. That was the Pope. But there was a pretty much equal status of the patriarch and even of the emperor in the East. It's a very different kind of history. The takeaway from this is, the good thing about this is that in that time of history, you had the Pope and the Eastern leaders working together. That's not the same right now. Yes, Eastern Catholic leaders and the Pope work together, but not the Orthodox and the Roman Catholic leaders. Now, they do come together in ecumenical discussions, which is a good thing, and they've made a lot of progress on that, but one does not really have an influence over the other. So I'll continue with Father Shedegui's writings here. The liturgy lauds the wisdom of the fathers who proclaimed you, preaching that you, O Lord, Son of God, are equal to the Father on the throne and to the Holy Spirit. Also, one of the Vesper verses gives a short resume of the council. The foolish Arius divided the headship of the Most Holy Trinity into three dissimilar and alien substances. Wherefore, the God-mantled fathers, having like Elias the Thesbite, come together with energy and burning with zeal, did cut off with the sword of the Spirit, him who was marked with shame because of his blasphemous teaching, they being inspired by the Spirit. Now, that's pretty tough language, isn't it? Yeah, the Eastern liturgy does have those kinds of languages. In fact, in some of the liturgical verses, it talks about how Arius was torn to pieces by dogs. In other words, he had this ugly death. And he's included in the anathemas that are read out loud on the first Sunday of Lent in many Eastern churches. The Easterners did not fool around when it came to the true teaching of the church. And we're still that way, whenever we're true to ourselves. What happened was there was a, he was actually a, a deacon of the church, Arius. He developed this thinking that caught on in the church. Many bishops bought into it at that time. This is in the fourth century. It caught on that Arius claimed that Jesus Christ was not fully divine. He was very outstanding, but he was not fully divine. He was human, but not fully divine. Now, in the history of the church, what happened with all the Christian heresies was always a struggle of defining, articulating, understanding, clarifying embracing, living, proclaiming really who Jesus Christ is. And in a similar way, who exactly is the Trinity? God is Trinity. And you can understand how these things could be sometimes 
misinterpreted to the point where there's actual heresies. Because the question of how can God be a human being, how can a human being be also God, that's a tough question. And you need to use and draw upon a lot of Greek philosophical terminology. It has to do with person and nature and substance and essence. In fact, those words were used in the formulation of the creed. You know, the I believe in one God. We say that Jesus was made of the same essence or substance as the Father and of the Holy Spirit. And so these are, these are tough concepts, let's face it. And sometimes they can go off. Someone can actually propose a wrong emphasis. That's basically what it is. It's a matter of emphasis. Well, whenever this happened, even though it caught on, does not mean it was the correct teaching. So whenever this happened, the Holy Spirit, working through people like an emperor, in this case, the Byzantine emperor, or a pope, they would call together, convene a council, try to bring together as many theologians and bishops as possible, and they would hash these things out until they finally arrived at what they believed was the true teaching. And then they would condemn the person who was proposing the teaching that was not true. Yeah, they were tough back in those days. They weren't worried about, can we all get along? They worried about, are we believing the right thing, the true faith, very committed to the true faith. Now, during the Byzantine liturgy, there's a point when the people are proclaiming the creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Originally, it was called the Apostles' Creed. It's sometimes still used in the Latin rite, the Apostles' Creed. That Apostles' Creed was then proclaimed at the Council of Nicaea, and they then added a few more things to it. And that's why the creed that we say in church, for the most part, is the what's called the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. So it's the a variation, it springboards off of the Apostles' Creed, but adds a few more things to it so that it codifies the most basic tenets of our faith, especially having to do with the Trinity and Jesus Christ. During the time that the people are proclaiming that, and usually it's by a chant in the Byzantine church, what happens is the priest is holding a veil, a veil that is, has been placed over the chalice and the discos, which has the wine and the bread that's about to be consecrated. He's holding that cloth, it's like a veil, he's holding it up and he's waving it back and forth. Now, whenever a bishop is at the altar, what happens is two priests come together and they hold that cloth up over the bishop's head. They still wave it, but he goes underneath it. Now, the reason for that, first of all, is as oftentimes happens in liturgy, is both practical and symbolic. Practical, the rubrics actually say that the veil is waved to keep flies and the like off of the gifts. So they're preparing these gifts and they want the, any kind of bugs or flies to be off of them because, let's face it, back when that rule was made, they had churches that weren't as airtight as ours are today and didn't have heat and air conditioning as ours do today. So they're a little bit more open, so sometimes bugs can come in. But the symbolic meaning was that the waving of that veil, especially over the head of the bishop, is that it was the Holy Spirit that came upon these great bishops and theologians at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and inspired them to arrive at the true faith and refute the heresy proposed by Arius. And that true faith is that Jesus Christ is both God, fully God, and fully human. Two natures, one person. We'll talk more about the creed when we come back. I'm Father Thomas Loya on Light of the East. 
Light of the East mission is Christianity's reunion. And to tell the story of the Eastern Lung of the Catholic Church, we need your support. In order to keep Light of the East on the air, you can make a donation now by going to ByzantineCatholic.com. That's ByzantineCatholic.com. And then donate securely using any major credit card. With your help, we can keep Light of the East's illumination bright. This is Bold Talk with Father Thomas Loyal. We live in strange times, full of contradictions, many of which we create and then force upon ourselves. An example of that is how we view the natural world. Everywhere you turn, throughout the media, the arts, even merchandise, we live in an age that professes great love and sympathy for the natural world, yet most people know little to nothing about the one natural environment they are most intimately acquainted with, that is themselves, their own body. While most people that you will meet would be very conscientious, even worry, about what sort of carbon footprint would be involved in driving to the store, they might seek out and only buy food that is labeled organic and chemical-free, and yet day after day, without giving it a thought, they douse their own bodies with chemicals like birth control pills, synthetic hormones, which trick the body into thinking it's pregnant day after day and month after month when it is not. Even more contradictory, there are individuals who believe that their very bodies, the gender they were born with, is somehow a mistake that must be fought against and even mutilated by surgical means. What is going on here? If we as people, individuals, groups, and even whole cultures want to more thoroughly embrace and be part of the natural world, we must start with embracing and understanding our closest and most intimate of natural worlds, ourselves. This is Archbishop Salvatore Cordiglione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco, and you are listening to Light of the East. Welcome back to Light of the East. I'm Father Thomas Loyal, your host on this day of the Council Fathers, the first ecumenical council, the first one. There were seven great ones. This is the first one in 325 AD. Very important one because it even got incorporated into the Mass and also the liturgy in both churches, East and West. It's known as the Creed, the I Believe. A lot of times it's called I Believe which is, of course, the first two words that we say in the creed, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Many times this creed in the Byzantine liturgy is said not only to a chant, but sometimes a very magnificent chant, especially if there's a choir. And it ends in a very resounding note because what's happening is we're standing there professing truth. Now, it's interesting that in the Russian or the old Slavonic, you know, the, the ancient Slavic languages, there's two words for truth. One means truth like, oh, yeah, that's true. It's true that it's, uh, the sun has come out today, the sky is blue. Okay, that's true. But then there's truth, meaning belief, doctrine. One is pravda, that's the first meaning of truth in the Russian, and the other one is istini, that's the other Slavic word for truth. And in the creed, we use the word istini. In other words, it means truth truth of truth, God's truth, not just that it's true that all things that go up must come down because there's gravity. We don't mean that. We mean truth in terms of a proclamation about God himself. 
And so we stand in a very majestic and sincere way. We profess that faith, and we're doing so before when we see the Eucharist. It's purposely done in that time of the liturgy because before we come forward to receive the body and blood of Christ, we must be believing what that Eucharist is about, what the church teaches on all things. So Eucharist is not just about getting Jesus. Yes, it is receiving the body and blood of Christ, his soul divinity into our own body and our bodies being united and grafted onto Christ's own body mystically through the Eucharist. Yes, it is that. But the Eucharist being the source and summit of everything also is about the church, the community that we must accept completely We accept that this is truly the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but we also accept everything else that the church teaches, including what is in the creed, the substance of Christ and the Father and the Holy Spirit. They are one substance, one essence, but as one perceives from the other and so on. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in last judgment, those real basic tenets we must believe in in order to receive Holy Communion, because it means that you're part of that body of Christ. Holy Communion is the body of Christ. The body of Christ now exists not only in the Eucharist itself, but in the church. So everything has to be consistent. No one's entitled to receive the Eucharist. It's a big problem today. You have to believe to be part of the team. You have to ascribe to all that it means because you are uniting yourself with the body and blood of Christ, but also with his body and blood as it is present in the church community the body of believers who believe together the same belief. So you can't have something fragmented. In the liturgical text, it'll say that Arius fragmented the church. He tore the cloak of the church apart. And that's why eventually he got torn apart by wild animals, according to the tradition. And why is this important? Why is it important to proclaim this in this particular teaching? Because this teaching harkens back to the one great mystery, the mystery of the incarnation of God. That if God had not fully taken on human nature and while remaining God, then humanity, the world, would not be sanctified. It would not have become sacramental as fully as it did when God took on his own creation. The human person, everything, is raised to a whole new level because God took on his own creation while still remaining God. And it makes God real to us. In other words, everything in this world, everything that has physical nature now becomes a participation in, a manifestation, a revelation of God himself. And this is why we care for things of the earth, like the environment and plants and trees and food, our pets, everything, most especially the human person, because God has entered into this creation, infused himself in every bit of it. So every aspect of creation must be seen in this sacramental vision, this incarnational vision. And that in turn determines how we relate to it. You don't have to be an environmentalist, a trendy environmentalist, or even radical in that way, to appreciate and preserve the environment. All you have to do is believe in the incarnation and believe that God himself took on flesh, fully human, fully God. Because then you know that the nature, the environment, is filled with God's presence. And therefore, the only way to respond to it is with that reverence. You don't have to worship it. You don't have to be an environmentalist. 
You just have to be someone who believes in the incarnation. The other reason is because we were saved by virtue of God taking on our flesh so that he could do what he did this week, raise it to the throne of heaven with him. Imagine, God takes our nature to the very throne of heaven with him. Let's look at some liturgical texts for this great feast day. You descended from heaven to the earth, O Christ, and by your ascension you wondrously raised up the race of Adam, which had been lying in the depths of the prison of Hades, and having taken our nature back to heaven, you seated it with you on the Father's throne because of your mercy and your love for all. God, who exists before eternity, and who has mystically divinized the human nature which he assumed, today goes up to heaven. The angels precede him and show to the disciples the Lord who ascends into the clouds amid great glory, and they then fall to the ground and say, Glory to God who ascends to heaven. Now, you have to try to imagine this, which you really can't. We were created by God, going back to Adam and Eve, good and holy and happy, and he wanted us to be that way forever on this earth and then gently pass into the next life, body and soul intact forever. But we blew it with the original sin. So what did God do to repay us for our insolence? He humbled himself. He humiliated himself, bent the heavens, came down and became one of us, took on our flesh, all of our suffering and pain and so on. He dies and then goes further down, is put into a tomb, and goes even further down into Hades itself and breaks the bonds of death and raises us up with him. As we say in our prayers and liturgy, he left nothing undone until he brought us to heaven. Can you imagine? That was God's vengeance. That was his revenge for our insolence. I'll fix you. I'll come down there and I will suffer for you. I will die for you. I will march into hell for you and face the devil. I will rescue you from these clutches and I will raise you to the highest level. I'll take you even to heaven with me. Can you imagine that? That was his response to our evil, our insolence. We could very easily have just been wiped out forever. We rebelled and that's it. You're done. But not this God. The God we believe in loved us so much that he would take on our nature and save us and raise it to heaven with him. And so this feast of the Council Fathers, this particular feast comes right in the midst of our celebration of the ascension of our Lord. Because this feast is all about the human body, that Jesus Christ took on that body while remaining still God. Two natures, one person. Some other liturgical text we have here. Enveloped by the divine cloud, the man of unsure speech taught the law written by God. Wiping a dust from his eyes, he saw the one who is, and he was initiated into the knowledge of the Spirit. Let us praise him with inspired songs. Of course, he's talking, that liturgical text is referring to Moses. Then we have this interesting passage. You that despise the body, your foolish talk is now silenced. Clearly has Christ revealed to us that all those united in the flesh will ascend with him on high. See, again, some pretty strong, no-nonsense words. That's our prayer. You that despise the body, you foolish talk is now silenced. 
In other words, if you don't look at the human body incarnationally, and there's been many heresies all the way up to our present day that did just that. This is part of the problem with the so-called sexual evolution, a lot of what goes on sexually with our bodies. We do not reverence the body in the sense we almost despise it. We look down on it. We can do whatever we want with it, abuse it in every which way. It's just a tool for our pleasure. You that despise the body, your foolish talk is now silenced. And then there's this quote here. Having so loved human nature, you granted that it may be enthroned with you in your compassion, united it with yourself. In union with it, you have suffered, and by your passion, you glorified it, O God, beyond all suffering. Now the bilious powers are saying, Who is this man called the majesty? He is not only a man, but is indeed the God-man, for he possesses the appearance of both. And the angels arrayed in splendid garments and circle the apostles, saying, As Jesus, the God-man, is separated from you in his divine humanity, he shall come again to judge both the living and the dead. And he grants to all the faithful forgiveness of sins and great mercy. Even the angels in heaven were amazed at watching God, Jesus Christ, rise up, ascend into heaven, pass them by with a human nature on him still, and mounting on the throne of heaven. This is why we look at the Council of Fathers, because it is from this action of God, his incarnation, his ascension, that we get this magnificent prayer of the creed. And the Council Fathers had the wisdom and the faith to know that that belief must be protected. Thanks for listening. I'm Father Thomas Leia on Light of the East. To hear Light of the East again, visit byzantinecatholic.com and click on the Features and Programs tab and on iTunes. Thank you for listening to Light of the East. We encourage you to tell a friend about Light of the East and to visit byzantinecatholic.com. Light of the East is produced by ADC Media. We need EWTN Radio for the reason that Mother Angelica founded this entire enterprise. She always saw this as a spiritual growth network. It was to be an enterprise in media that reached people in all aspects of their life. She saw this as a, a holistic approach to reaching the whole person in the middle of the world and bringing them truth and life. Raymond Arroyo thinks Catholic Radio is important. So should you. Thank you for listening. Next week, we will return to the light of the East. To learn more about Annunciation Byzantine Catholic Parish, visit our website, byzantinecatholic.com, where you will also find an archive of all of our programs. In order to continue Light of the East with its mission of Christianity's reunion, we need your support with a donation. Any amount will be a blessing. Please make out a check to Light of the East Radio and send it to Light of the East, 14610 Will Cook Road, Homer Glen, Illinois, 60491. That's Light of the East, 14610 Wilcook Road, spelled W-I-L-L-C-O-O-K Road, Homer Glen, Illinois. Or donate online on the homepage of ByzantineCatholic.com. From the Light of the East, a new dawn of unity is in sight. God bless you, go with God, and may God grant you many happy years. Oh!